Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 16. As we continue to work our way through John's Gospel, we're in our third week on John 3, 16. Because it's kind of like the verse that we all think we know, but we don't really know as well as we think we do. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome and encouraged to take that Bible home with you and to read it, make good use of it. So, let's begin with a little review. Actually, you know what? No, let's begin by reading the verse and then we'll jump into the review. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? So, we began our study of John 3.16 two weeks ago, and when we did, we began by looking at spiritual death. And in that sermon, we saw that death means to be separated from God, and that apart from Christ, all men are separated from God. They are dead in sin. Now, last week... We continued in our series on John 3.16 by considering the promise of eternal life. We saw that to have eternal life is the opposite of death. If death is to be separated from God, then life is to be united to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we also considered the way it is that God brings us out of death and into life. He does this through the sin-destroying work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, the reason why we die is because of sin. So the only way that we can live is if somebody handles the sin problem. And we said that on the cross, in the gospel, Jesus dealt sin its death blow. Now this morning, in our third sermon, our final sermon on John 3.16, we're going to begin by asking the question, why? Why did God choose to rescue us from death and give us the gift of eternal life? It seems natural to us that he would do that, but he didn't have to do that. There was nothing that said that God had to save us. He could have just let justice have its way with us, but he didn't. He rescued us at a very great cost. So the question that we need to ask this morning is why? What motivated God to carry out such a monumental rescue mission? What moved God to give up his only begotten son? Now the answer from the text, we just read it, it's pretty simple, it's it's right there. For God so loved the world. The reason why God did what he did is because of love. You guys tracking? It is precisely at this point that I need to be very careful in this morning's sermon. It is precisely at this point that I could commit a fatal error in preaching the gospel of John 3.16 to you. What would that error be? It would be to simply move forward and preach on love, particularly the love of God, as if we all have a shared definition of that word. We probably don't. I'd be willing to bet that many of us, when we think of the word love, are probably thinking of something slightly, if not greatly, different than what Jesus means when he uses the word love in John 3.16. You know, outside of uh, school reports and essays, most of us don't look up the definitions of the words we use, right? When you were in ninth grade, you know, uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines democracy as da-da-da. But most of us don't do that. We don't look up the definitions to the words we use. Rather, we tend to feel our way towards a definition of words. Words like justice, discipline, love. We have a kind of moral intuition about what certain words mean, and we let those intuitions guide us in how we apply those concepts to our lives. So even though most of us can't define love, we tend to have a sense of what it means. We tend to have a working definition of love, and it is that working definition that we apply to our Christian lives. And my fear is that our intuitions about the love of God are shaped more by the world 
than by Scripture. Even for professing Christians, our conception of love may not necessarily line up with God's definition of love. So let me just give you an example. You'll find that many professing Christians agree with the world that, that love is nothing other than unconditional affirmation. Right? One author says it like this. Love is whatever you want to be, say, or do. It's all okay because love says that I accept you just the way you are. This understanding of love is essentially the view that was put forth by Rob Bell in his 2011 wildly popular, incredibly bad book, Love Wins. In this book, Bell argues that everyone in the end will be saved. What's interesting to note in this book is his argument or kind of an argument as to why that will be the case. According to Rob, it's because God is love, and in the end, love wins. But, but Rob's definition of love, particularly the love of God, seems to be more informed by modern Western culture than it is by what God has revealed about his own love in the Bible. Bell's conception of love is unconditional affirmation. It's a love that's devoid of justice. It's a love that's devoid of perishing. It's a love that's devoid of hell. It's a love that is foreign to the gospel. Now, here's the thing. Rob Bell is old news. Some of y'all laughed when I brought up his name and quoted his book, but most people in here have probably never even heard of him. But his ideas about love are still alive and well in the world and unfortunately in too many parts of the church. Now, this morning's sermon is not intended to communicate everything that I could possibly say to you about God's love. We only have like an hour. Some of you say, Sean, actually 45 minutes, but you're going to do an hour anyways, and that's right. What I want for us to spend the rest of our time together doing this morning is making sure that when we read John 3.16, the most popular verse in the entire Bible, wherever you go in the world, and when we read about the reality of God's love in the gospel in John 3.16, that we are not reading into the text or into the gospel our own false ideas about what that love is. I want us to make sure that when we read the phrase, for God so loved the world, that we understand what Jesus means when he uses the word love. So, I have three points for you this morning. Note takers, here they are. And guys, can I tell you how happy I am that I was able to alliterate these three points it's so rare. Uh, you ready for this? God's love is sacrificial, surprising, and selective. Sacrificial, surprising, and selective. Let me pray, and then we will jump into point number one. Father God, we have been loved by you. We pray that you would help us to understand that love so that we can be faithful in living out that love and communicating that love. Lord God, we look forward to the day when we will forever be able to be with you and bask in that love. But in the meantime, train us up as we are still a long ways away on that journey. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Point number one, God's love is sacrificial. Now I've got subpoints for you here, okay? Subpoint number one, love is a verb. Love is a verb. So let's, let's begin with the idea that love is more than a feeling. As I prepared my sermon all week, I kept hearing the Boston song in my head, but I'll try to just move forward. If we were a certain kind of church, I might even just have somebody cue it up on the soundboard. Love is more than a feeling. Now listen, in the age of hashtag activism, it is easier than ever for us to confuse emotions with virtues. So let me, let's do a little thought experiment, okay? Well, it's an illustration. Uh, imagine yourself crawling under barbed wire into hostile enemy territory. You know, you're in the war, uh, gunshots are going off all around you, bullets are flying, 
And as you imagine yourself in that scenario, you probably imagining yourself exercising bravery. You imagine yourself in that moment to be brave. This is the kind of thing that a lot of young men do as they think about going into battle and they anticipate the glories of war. Think about a, you know, a Teddy Roosevelt. He imagines himself in that moment riding into battle being brave. What I want you to see is that feeling that feeling as you imagine that scenario is not actually bravery. That's just a daydream. But actually being on the battlefront, actually having bullets flying over your head, crawling under barbed wire, working your way through the mud into enemy territory, that is an exercise of the virtue bravery. Many of us pretend that our feelings are the same thing as our virtues. They are not. Now take this concept and apply it to love. Love is not a feeling that you have towards someone. It's not merely a feeling. Love, when fully expressed, is an action. So if we confuse loving someone with merely having fond emotional dispositions towards them, then we may not have a biblical understanding of love. But if we feel fondly towards someone and then act appropriately towards them in light of those feelings, well, then we have demonstrated true love. So let's just give you an example. It's not loving to merely feel positive feelings for the poor. You know, oh, yeah, I really, mm, I love the poor. I love them so much. I think about them all the time. It is loving to give of your time, talent, and treasure to serve the poor. And there's a world of difference between those two. Uh, let me let the Apostle John say it better than I could, okay? He says, if anyone obeys God's word, love for God is truly made complete in him. How can love be made complete and not be superficial, artificial, worldly love? Well, through obedience, through action. First John chapter 3, he says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Right? So there's an action that's required of us. Listen to this really straightforward definition of love that John gives a little later in 2 John. He says this, and this is love. You've got to love it when the Bible does that, right? Just here it is. Pay attention. Here's the definition. That we walk in obedience. That we live in obedience to God's commands. So a love that's devoid of action, particularly action that is rooted in obedience to God and what he has commanded, is not love. Love is a deed, not an emotion. And you can see that in this morning's text. In this morning's text, we see that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Right? The love of God, the love that God has for a world lost in sin is more than a feeling. In the gospel, we see that the love of God is an action that God took for the sake of a lost and dying world. He sent his son. He gave up his son. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Sean, it doesn't sound very difficult to send someone else to die. Uh, it's here that you should probably just remember the nature of the Trinity, right? Uh, God the Father sent God the Son, but God the Son did not die unwillingly. Jesus wasn't forced to die. He says this himself. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So we'll talk more about Jesus' self-sacrifice in point number two. For now, I just want you to see in this first subpoint that love is an action. Subpoint number two, love is a sacrificial deed. So it's not just a deed, it's a sacrificial deed. Uh, I remember as a young Christian <clears throat> hearing a sermon on John 3.16 that really blew my mind. I mean, it blew me away. And you've probably heard a sermon like this. Uh, let me tell you about it. In the sermon, the, the, the preacher, in very dramatic fashion, drew the listener's attention to just one word in John 3.16, the word so. For God so loved the world. And then the pastor spent the next 
however long, waxing eloquent on this one word, so. How much does God love the world? So much. And then he went and he just showed you just over and over again in in a thousand different ways just how much God loves us by giving his son. And it was really powerful. I was really encouraged uh, to think about how much God loves me. The only problem with that is that it's absolutely not what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3, verse 16. Of course, God loves me, and that's good, and that is what he's saying. But that's not what the word so means in John three sixteen. It doesn't mean so much. It's not quantitative. In order to show you what it means, let me just draw your attention just to a few verses before John chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You'll see the same word being used there in the Greek. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What it means is, in this way. Right? So as Moses lifted up the serpent, in this way the Son of Man must also be lifted up. You come back to John 3.16. It does not say, for God loved the world so much. It means, for God so loved the world, in this way God loved the world. If you want to know how did God love the world, how did he demonstrate his love for us, he did it in this way, by sending his Son to die for us. So, if you want to know what God's love looks like, most clearly, all you have to do is look at the gospel. John says it, excuse me, Jesus says it this way in John 15, 18. Greater love has no one than this. So Sean, is there a greater love? No, Jesus says there's no greater expression of love than this, that someone lay down his life. So if you were to come up to me after service and say, Man, I'm just having trouble wrapping my mind around the love of God. I want to see it as clearly as possible. I want to see the deepest possible expression of God's love. I want to see it with 4K clarity. You know, not 720p YouTube buffering with bad internet connection clarity. 4K clarity. Pristine clarity. How can I see that? I would say, look at the cross. Look at God giving up his son. That's love. But it's not enough for us to merely understand love. In order for us to be obedient to the commands of love, we have to live this concept out in our own lives. Listen to 1 John, not a coincidence, 3.16. John says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So every single Christian in here, every person in this room that understands love biblically, The reason why you know that, according to John, is because you've seen it in the gospel. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then he continues. Okay, ready? Here's where the rubber hits the road for you. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if you say that you know God and the love of God because you've seen it in the gospel, then it should be normal for you to be expressing that love in the same way. As children of God, we are called to be imitators of God. You can't imitate something you've never seen, but we've seen it. We've been saved by it. And so we should do it. You can see this concept worked out in Scripture in many places practically, right? What does it look like for people who have come to know the sacrificial love of God and then express it on earth in their relationship with others? You see it in a bunch of places, but probably nowhere as clearly as in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is teaching husbands and wives how they're supposed to relate to one another in Christ, and Paul says this to the husbands. So husbands, I don't know if you've tuned tuned me out up to this point. If you have, just focus back in, because God's about to rebuke you, okay? Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You've seen the gospel, you understand the sacrificial nature of the gospel, it's not enough. You have to do something with what you've seen, with what you've been saved by. So husbands, the way that you do that is you love your wife sacrificially. 
You give up your time, your talent, and treasure. You do stuff that you don't want to do. She wants to see this movie. You don't want to see the movie. You go with her anyways. She asks for help with her furniture projects. You don't want to help with her furniture. Wait, sorry, I get a little too personal here. <laughs> you know. You guys disagree on something. You're patient with her. You don't lord your authority over her. You try to counsel her with the word. You pray for her and with her. You give up your time, talent, and treasure to see her become more like Jesus. Friends, there is no way around it. When God calls us to love our neighbor like we have been loved in the gospel, the only way that we can love people that way is when we sacrifice, when we give something up of ourselves. Time, talent, treasure, sleep, comfort, emotional bandwidth, in an age where everyone is talking about self-care and I just got to make sure that I keep my mental health in order, I can't be worried about you and, and your problems, that just feels so anti-gospel to me. You should be willing to sacrifice yourself, not go crazy for someone else, but you know what I mean, within reason. There is a limit as human beings, obviously, to how much we can give of ourselves to other people. We're not God, but so few of us ever get anywhere near that limit. We just never even get close. You know, something gets hard in a relationship and we just, boom, jump ship. As I was writing this sermon, I kept thinking about the Norton family. And so now I'm going, where are they at? I'm going to embarrass them. Yes, Nortons. I kept thinking about just how sacrificial their love has been for this church, particularly in the way that they open up their home. They sacrifice their privacy, their family time, their comfort, their sleep, their finances, their free time all in love for the body of Christ. And I think when they do that, they paint a beautiful picture of the love of God. Friends, true love in a fallen world will always be a messy affair. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sacrifices are messy, bloody affairs that cost us something. So if you're trying to love people like Jesus loved you, you might as well just be prepared to eat it to count the cost, to get your hands dirty, to have some relational skirmishes. This is just the way it works. There's no other way around it. If you never feel like you are dying as you try to love someone, you're probably not loving them with the love of the gospel. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul, speaking of his own ministry, says this. He says, I die every day. That's what he says. I die every day. When was the last time that you loved someone so well in a situation that was so hard that you felt like you were dying? Point number two. God's love is surprising. John Piper, quoting Jonathan Edwards, breaks love down into two categories. Now, this can be a little heady and technical, I promise I'm going to make it simple for you, okay? Here they are, note takers. Love of complacency and love of benevolence. Here, Here they are, as simple as possible. Love of complacency is loving that which is inherently lovable. Right, it has attributes, qualities in itself that uh, that you love. So, like tacos, for example. Right, like I love tacos because it has lovable attributes, namely the taste, the texture, the smell. Sorry, let me come back to you guys. (laughs) Then there's the love of benevolence. It's called the love of benevolence because it requires you to love something out of your goodwill, out of your benevolent nature. You're loving something that is not inherently lovable. Like think black licorice. I was hoping that would land a little harder, but here we go. (laughs) So love of complacency, loving that which is inherently lovable. Love of benevolence, loving that which is not very lovable. When we bring our own ideas of love to bear on John 3.16, we almost always think of a love of complacency. We think that God so loves the world because the world is lovely. Because the world is has inherent qualities that make it worthy of his love. And we think that way about the world because we think that way about ourselves, right? We think, of course God loves me. 
How could he not love me? I'm lovely. Everyone else loves me. False. But that's actually the exact opposite of what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here in John 3.16. In John 3.16, Jesus is saying that the love that God has for the world is a love of benevolence. That is, God is not responding to anything lovely in the world. Rather, he is loving the world despite how unlovable it is. So do you remember our scripture reading from earlier in the service where I was asking you to pay attention, to find the thread? I wonder if you saw there. We did a little scripture jam where we read throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the entire Gospel of John, whenever the world comes up, it comes up in negative terms. The world in the Gospel of John is not good, it's bad. It's dark, it's evil, it's broken, it's separated from God, it's hostile to God. Let me just run through these scriptures again. John chapter 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. John 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. So how does Jesus feel about the world? He says the world hates him. That's not good. Now, this is the judgment of this world, and we will render the judgment that the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated you because it hated me before you. Now listen to 1 John, where, G, where the apostle John takes what he got from Jesus and he spins it out. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the world. Excuse me, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away. It's dying along with its desires. So why is John 3.16 so surprising? Why is my point here, point number two, the love of God is surprising? It's because it should blow our minds that God loves this broken, evil world. This world that is so inherently unlovable. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The love that God had for us was not a love for someone who was on the same team. We were dead, and he loved us in our death. Yeah, it's easy for us to wrap our minds around the concept of God loving us, but God loving us when we're dead in sin, that should blow us away. And if it doesn't blow you away, maybe it's because you misunderstand what it means to be dead in sin. Maybe you forget that according to God's word, to be dead in sin is not to be in a a neutral relationship towards God. We saw this two weeks ago. The light came into the world, and the world hated the light. Listen to Paul's further explanation in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were still weak, and now listen, when you hear weak, you probably think like, oh, somebody who's not very strong. But what Paul means when he uses the word weak here in the ancient world is something despised, right? In the ancient world, to be weak was despicable, which is why the cross is such a scandal. For while we were still weak, despicable, despised, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That should blow our minds. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Okay, we can imagine a world in which, you know, Jesus would die for somebody who was good, somebody who maybe deserved it, someone who was a little lovable. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. As I read Paul in Ephesians 5, I can tell that he's just as blown away by the love of God in the gospel as we should be. He's blown away by it. Can you believe it? He died for us while we were sinners. Listen to James in James chapter 4. Do you not know, so you should know, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no neutral territory. There's no like, I'm going to be in the friend group that's cool with both people after the breakup, right? Like that doesn't exist here. 
You can either choose to be a friend with the world and therefore hate God and be at war with God, or you can choose to be a friend of God. The reason why the love of God in John 3.16 should surprise us, surprise us is because in it, we see God choosing not to crush his enemies, but to save them. Point number three. The love of God is selective. You could also say elective, but selective is the three S's you see. All right. Uh, guys, I'm about to make a sustained argument, okay? So I need you to focus with me here. I need you to, to try and track with me. I try not to make uh, our sermons on a Sunday morning be unnecessarily technical or so highfalutin in their theology that people feel like it's hard to keep up. I'm going to do my best to do that here. Nevertheless, I need to make an argument that requires you to lock in and focus on the logic of the text. So, uh, now, first also, let me say that the argument that I'm about to make is controversial, and it shouldn't be. This should just be the way that people know how to read their Bibles. It should, it should just be something that's common knowledge for all Christians. But it's not. It's, it's because many Christians have grown up in churches where they've been taught to ignore certain parts of the Bible and certain words in the Bible, words like predestination and election, or they've been taught to be hostile to those concepts, or they've been trained to kind of reason them away and to make them mean that which they do not mean. And so we can come to an argument like the one I'm about to make, and we can be shocked by it, confused by it, angry about it, uh, but I'm going to try to show you this from God's Word. So that if you end up disagreeing with me, I would just encourage you to dig deeper into God's word and see what he has to say and then maybe take it up with him or come back and show me a better way from scripture. So without further ado, here's the argument that I'm going to make. The love of God that Jesus articulates in John 3.16 is the love of election. The love of election. Now, you may be thinking, well, Sean, I don't even know what election is. I'm a brand new Christian. Well, rather than give you a big theological definition and, you know, quote some systematic theologian to you, I'd rather just help you see the concept in the Bible, right? In the Bible, we can, we can see that in the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel to belong to him, to be his cherished possession, to be a holy nation that's separate and distinct from all the other nations of the earth. We see that in the Old Testament, God said, nation of Israel, I love you in a way that's different and it's salvific in a way that I don't love every other nation on the earth. You can read that in places like Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You alone of all the families of the earth have I chosen. What does he mean when he says chosen? I've set my heart on you. Right? I've communicated my word to you. I've made salvation possible to you. You see the same thing kind of worked out in marriage, right? I love Amber in a very distinct, special way choosing way that I don't love every other woman in this church, okay? Now, the doctrine of election says that God loves everyone in the world, but that he loves his chosen people in a special way, in a salvific way. Now, the argument that I'm making is that the love of God that Jesus teaches about in John 3.16 is not a providential or a universal love but rather it is an electing love, a choosing love. And in order to make that point, I just need you to follow the logic of the text, okay? So let's just review the logic of the text. We've seen that apart from Christ, all men are dead in sin. That's what the perishing language is in John 3.16, right? He sends his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish. Now, in order to save us from this death, from this perishing, God sent his son to die on the cross and to give us the gift of eternal life. He did that by taking the wrath of God on himself, and there's an exchange of righteousness. My sin is put on him, and his righteousness is credited to me through faith. Which leads me to my next point in the argument. The way that we pass from death to life is by receiving the work of Christ on the cross through faith. That's what the believing language is here. It says that whoever believes in him should not perish. So how do you go from dead to alive? You believe. Now, here's the last little piece of logic, okay? 
Stay with me. Not everyone believes. Not everyone believes. We've already seen that. Some look at Jesus and they go, this is amazing. I want you. I want to live. Others look at the light and they hate the light, namely because the light exposes their sin. So now here is the key question. Why doesn't everyone believe? Why do some believe while others remain in unbelief? Well, we've already seen that. You remember from earlier in chapter 3 what we learned from Nicodemus. We learned that the only way that you can believe is if you're born again. Right? Go back to the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that language of seeing there is not physical sight, it's the language of faith all throughout Jesus' teaching. So you cannot believe in the kingdom of God unless God gives you the gift of new birth. Well, I guess that leads us to another question. To whom does God give the gift of new birth? He doesn't give it to everyone. Does he just give it out indiscriminately? Is God up there in heaven, you know, blindfolded and he's got like little darts of regeneration and he just kind of, you know, throws them down at random souls and opens his eyes and says, okay, regeneration for you, you, and you. You can all be born again. Is there some sort of cosmic lottery wherein like when you're born, God assigns a number to you at birth? And then he puts that number on a lottery ball and he puts it in the hopper and he's just perpetually spinning it throughout all the ages and then he pulls a ball out and he sees your number and you win the lottery of regeneration? No. To whom does God give the gift of regeneration? The answer is to all those whom he chose in eternity's past. All those whom he loved with his electing love before the foundations of the world. In order to see this, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> In Ephesians 1, Paul is telling these new Christians about all the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. And he, he begins by taking them right to the deep end. He begins with the doctrine of election. In chapter 1, verse 4, he begins like this. Actually, let me start with verse 3 for context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First blessing. Even as he chose us, that's believers, in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He loved us. He set his heart upon us in a special way. He marked us out for salvation before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. So this concept of predestination that so many Christians are afraid of, it is connected to John 3.16. You cannot understand how God so loved the world and sent his son to save the world unless you under, understand predestination. Not only did God love us and choose us, but in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. We were in sin. We were dead. We were in the world. God brings us out of that and into his family, into life through adoption. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption, that's in Christ, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So, the Father elects, he chooses, and he predestines. And every single person that the Father chooses before the foundation of the world, the Son comes and gives up his life to save those people. And then later, you see that we are sealed by the Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it. Friends, this is the economy of salvation. The Father elects and predestines in eternity's past. In love, he sets his heart on us. Then he sends his Son, and the Son comes and he gives up his life on the cross to save all those that the Father predestined and chose. And then the Spirit comes and applies the work of regeneration to our hearts, those whom the Father chose and the Son died for, He applies the work of regeneration so that as we hear the gospel, we can see and believe what it is that we are hearing. This is the economy of love. Now, what I want to do to spend the rest of our, what I want to spend the rest of our time doing in this sermon together is I want to show you that Jesus teaches these very things in John's gospel. So let's go to Ephesians 1 and look at it, but you don't have to go to Ephesians 1. We're going to see this as we continue to walk through John's gospel together. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, open up to the the gospel of John, and let's just prepare to walk through some verses together. So starting in John chapter 10, John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells us who it is that he dies for. He says, I am the, uh, sorry, John chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So who did Jesus die for? The sheep. Does Jesus die for every single person that has ever lived in the world? No, that's not what he says. He says he dies for the sheep. And you might be thinking, well, Sean, aren't, isn't everybody the sheep? Nope, the sheep in Scripture is a metaphor for God's elect, all those whom God has chosen. Now, it's right here that you may be thinking, well, Sean, I just don't know, man. I was raised in the church my whole life. I was always told that Jesus died for everyone, for every single person. I'm sure that that's true. I'm sure that you were taught that. But I'm equally sure that that idea can be found Nowhere in Scripture. What is in Scripture is the truth of John 3.16, that Jesus died for the world. Now, when you hear the word world, and when Jesus uses the word world, you probably are thinking of different things. The modern Western man or woman who has been trained to think of the world in post-enlightenment terms, in the terms of the individual, when you hear the word world, you think every single person in the world. But when Jesus uses the word world, what he means is all kinds of people. What he means is, I didn't come just to die for the Jews, I came to die for everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Now I could show you this in like 10 different places in scripture, but I just want to take you and show you one place in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, that's Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. Who did Jesus die for? Who was he slain for? Who did he shed his blood for? Was it just for the Jews? No, it was from people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. God has sheep everywhere around the globe. There's no language, there's no tribal people, there's no nation on this earth where God does not have some of his elect, some of his chosen people. Now listen to John chapter 11. Actually, just turn back there with me. John chapter 11, where Jesus says the same thing. Or excuse me, it is said of Jesus the same thing. John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. 
He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And that's when he says the nation, he means Jews, the Jewish nation. And not just for the nation, not just for the Jews only, but also to gather into one the children of God, the elect, the sheep, who are scattered abroad amongst the nations. Who did Jesus die for? For all of his sheep that are scattered abroad amongst the nations, all the people who belong to him, all of his elect. Many Christians have the order of operations backward. They think that we become sheep by believing. But that's the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Go back to chapter 10 one more time. Go back to chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why don't you believe? Well, because you're not a sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And remember, hearing is just another image of faith. My sheep hear me, and they believe me, and I know them, and they follow me. According to Jesus, the reason why people don't believe in him is because they don't belong to him. And the reason why people do believe in him is because they already belong to him because of what God did in eternity's past. Let me just read three more verses. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, this is the language of election, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So who can come to Jesus when they hear the gospel? Only those that the Father draws. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Well, who does the Father grant this gift to? All those whom he elected. All those whom he predestined for adoption as sons. The Father chooses. The Son saves. The Spirit regenerates. But Sean, I see it right here in the text. The text says, whoever believes. Whoever And I don't disagree with that. It's right there in the text. Whoever believes can be saved. But the question is, since none of us believe according to the power of our own flesh, and because we need to be regenerated in order to believe, who is able to believe? That's what we've just seen. Now, why am I making such a big fuss over this? Why am I taking 20 minutes at the end of an already long sermon to make a theological point that will probably make some people in the room unhappy or at least lead me to have to have a lot of conversations after this. Probably not that many in our church. Not these days. Why am I going so out of my way to make this point about the love of God in John 3.16? Well, there's a couple reasons. But the main reason is really practical. It's because I need you to believe in the strength of God's love. I need you to know that when God says that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that people can pass from death to life, that the love that he is expressing there is not a facile love. It's not an impotent love. His love towards the spiritually perishing is a love that actually accomplished salvation. His love is not a love that kind of holds salvation out and says, I guess you can have it maybe if you can conjure it up within yourself to receive it. That's not the love of God in the gospel. God's love in the gospel is a powerful love. It is a conquering love. It is an unbreakable love. It's a love that's not rooted in your ability, but rather in God's determination to keep his promises. It's a a love that's rooted not in this present moment, but in eternity's past. It's a love that's not rooted in the weakness of your faith, and it is weak all too often. I know, I'm a sheep just like you. It's a love that is rooted in God's character that cannot change. The love of God in John 3.16 is a victorious love that actually saves those whom Jesus died for. If we say that Jesus died for every single person, We cannot say that his love 
is effectual in its saving. That's not the love that I think Jesus teaches from his own words. So my question for you this morning, members, visitors alike, professing Christians and maybe people who aren't sure, those who know that they're not Christians, is do you believe in this love? Only through believing in this love can you be saved. Now, the exact wrong thing for you to do this morning would be to say, oh, well, Sean, in light of what you just said, maybe I need to find out if I'm elect first and then I'll believe. It doesn't work like that. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not as if God went around with a big stamp hitting people on the forehead, elect, elect, elect. That's not the way this works. All you need to do this morning is ask yourself this question, am I a sinner? Now, I'll give you the answer to that, okay? You don't have to look in the back of the book. It's yes. And if you say, yes, I am a sinner, then ask yourself, have I trusted in Christ for salvation? Have I believed in this promise in the gospel? And if the answer is no, then you just need to do it. And if you're like, Sean, I don't even know if I can, then pray and ask God to do it. You're right, you can't do it, but God can do it in you. If you believe, you will be saved. The famous 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody once said this about election. He said, written on the outside of the gate of heaven are the words, whoever will may come. And then once you pass through the gate of salvation, on the other side of that gate, once you're in heaven, you can read these words, chosen before the foundations of the world. Don't try to read the inside of the gate this morning from where you're standing on the outside of the gate. Just know that the gate has been cast wide open for you and walk through it and have life everlasting. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we are blown away that we have been loved by you. We pray that you'll help us to rejoice in this love, to take comfort in this love, to be strong in this love. And we pray that you'll help us to live out this love, to reflect your love to a lost and dying world so that they might, not, so that they might know you, the God who is love. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.